welcome to Covenant Presbyterian Church of Fort Smith's weekly sermon podcast. Covenant is a church devoted to theological depth, intimate relationships, joyous worship, relentless evangelism, and sacrificial service. Here now is our pastor, Dr. John Clayton. We find ourselves in 1 Timothy chapter 3, We're going to look at verses 13 through 16. Here now the reading of God's holy inerrant, and inspired word. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. Let's go to Him in prayer. Guide us, we pray, O God, by Your Word and Spirit that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover your peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. To set the context briefly, the Apostle Paul likely wrote his first epistle to Timothy after his Roman imprisonment and while he was traveling during his fourth missionary journey. Scholars tell us that it was written somewhere between 62 and 64 AD. It is an epistle characteristic of a mentor's counsel to a young minister, which Timothy was. And Paul, in his epistle, he encourages Timothy, to use the gifts that God has given him to minister in the local church, and in this case, the church at Ephesus. Now, given his age, Timothy needed all the counsel he could get, right? And thankfully, Paul has much to say within this epistle. Paul addresses matters in the church, such as prayer, corporate worship, government, and of course, doctrine, all of which Paul conveys in writing so that, as he puts it to Timothy in our passage today, so that you may know how one ought to behave in the church. (laughs) Now, I, I am a born and raised Southerner, and here in the South, manners, I think still, are important. And as I read this passage, I sort of chuckled to myself. I thought, how one ought to behave? Did Paul really just say that? (laughs) You know, like, be sure to iron your shirt. Be sure to say, yes, sir, and yes, ma'am. Be sure to conduct yourself in a way, well, that is in keeping with how you were raised, boy. (laughs) Well, that's not exactly what Paul means here. But he did literally say this, how one ought to behave in the church. And and, and if I may, let me refer you to the entire epistle. 
Because that's really what it is. It is a manual written to Timothy and so to the church on how one ought to behave in the church. But in stating this purpose, interestingly enough, he is also telling us about the church. For example, he's using metaphors of house and home. And doing so, Paul describes the relational but also the missional necessity of the local church. It's that important. For God has chosen the church to house and to hold forth the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to the world. And so I want to start with this word that's used in our passage today, the house of God. I want us to start here because of the metaphors that Paul uses to refer to the church, he begins here with household. Now, household in English, but so also in Greek, is a synonym for family. Paul's counsel is not merely to a social institution, it's not to the country club. It is to a family. In fact, it is specifically to the family in Christ. And this local family in Ephesus, so also to this local family in Fort Smith, Arkansas today. And just as there is authority and responsibility within the family, so also in the church. We ought to behave in the household of God as... Children of God, as brothers and sisters in and with Christ. Like, we don't ever need to forget that, right? We're a family of children of God. So we behave like that. We should always behave like that. For that's what we are. And so, in this sense, the church is a family that is defined exclusively defined by God, and that is who we worship. In our day and age, this is important for us to remember. Because even within evangelical circles, there can be an emphasis on, well, I think isolationistic tendencies. As if we are just individuals, islands in the stream, so to speak. But Scripture, and specifically our New Testament, does not support that view. We're not islands in the stream. We are not isolationists. In fact, we are defined with the very word of assembling. The Greek word ekklesia, which we define in English as church, means literally assembly. Or gathering, or the assembled ones, or the gathered ones. And so our very definition of who we are as a church is together, not separate. We live our lives together in Christ. Gathering in Sabbath worship of word and sacrament and prayer. But also weddings. But also fellowships. But also funerals. Living the Christian life together, as I like to say, from cradle to grave. 
I mean, think about that. What a beautiful picture that is, that a child that would be baptized in this church, so also the minister, probably not me, would perform that person's, that child's funeral one day. From cradle to grave in the local church. We live together as one household. Caring for one another. Sharing with one another. Even bearing with one another as fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters. Our common union is not merely a faith tradition. Which I heard used repeatedly through this Christmas season. Our common union is not the memory of the now deceased. It is not in our political persuasions, thank God, nor the figments of our cultural idolatry. No, our common union is in the living and true God. That's our common union. And Jesus said that... Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Christ is present at this moment. In fact, one of my prayers for us as a church is that when we leave Sunday worship, that you would say, we have truly met with God. Mm. That's a beautiful thing, isn't it? I don't really want you to talk about the preacher. Please don't. He's just not that interesting. I don't want you to talk necessarily about the structure of the sermon. Or criticize the music. Or the service. Or even the liturgy. Now my prayer for us is that we would say, Today, today, we have met with God. Mm. Our purpose for being is worship. And so we're called to it. And we assemble for it. As Joshua reminded the Old Testament church of God's presence among them. And in doing so, pointing to God's provision for them. So also in the New Testament church. Is that not the same thing that we do? That because of Christ's death, because of His resurrection, because of His ascension, because of His promised presence among us, we do not go to the temple as Paul taught us, but we are the temple of God. As if describing a cathedral. This is beautiful language, isn't it? As if describing, in my mind as I'm reading this, I'm thinking those beautiful cathedrals in the British Isles. Paul says that the church serves as a pillar and a buttress of the living God. A pillar and a buttress of truth. We are not an in, a ornamental facade. I had to look back at my notes to make sure I got this. My wife is a former decorator, so I tread in dangerous territory here. We're not an ornamental facade, but a load-bearing pillar. Not merely an aesthetic feature, but an integrally 
engineered buttress. You see, because the weight of what we hold forth is indeed heavy with significance, especially amid the gale force winds and the forces of this stormy world. But let's be clear. We hold forth the truth, but it's not because you're so strong. It's not because I'm so strong. Now, I'm not looking to you, and you better not be looking at me. No, what is strong in the church? What we proclaim. Christ crucified. A stumbling block to many, but to those who are called, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So thank God it is not up to you and me. Our power is not in and of ourselves, but we bear the truth in Christ. As Paul said to the Corinthians, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And so, we who know the truth, tell the truth. That's what we do. We know and tell. That which Paul says, and I love this expression, that which Paul refers to here as the mystery of godliness. The mystery of of godliness. Now I want you to think back with me. When Satan as a serpent tempted Eve and through her Adam, they sinned against God, as our shorter catechism says, into an estate of sin and misery. You're going to know that soon. It's one of the first question and answers. They fell into an estate of sin and misery and as a result, God pronounced their punishment. But who did he begin with? Do you remember in your studies of Genesis? You'll know this, of course, very soon as you do read your daily Bible readings. Early, Genesis chapter 3, we find out that God pronounced the punishment of... Uh, no, Satan. The serpentine Satan, he pronounced his punishment first with this key reference. The Lord God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. It is a prophetic yet mysterious promise. Certain to be fulfilled, but when? And how? And who in the world is this woman's offspring the one to crush the serpent's head? Like That's a key piece of information I'm thinking very early in Genesis. And as we proceed from the third chapter of Genesis through the rest of the Old Testament, we see God's sovereign preservation of individuals. I mean, think with me just very quickly. We, we think of Seth, and we think of Noah, and we think of Abraham, and we think of Isaac and Jacob. But we also see a people preserved, Israel, chosen by God, with prophetic purpose to fulfill a promise. But we also see in the pages of Scripture Satan's sinister attempts to unravel the mystery. 
to destroy the woman's offspring, to thwart God's plan. And if I may, to skip from Genesis chapter 3 to Revelation chapter 12, I think that the Apostle John paints this picture perhaps most colorfully. Where Satan is no longer characterized as a lying serpent, but in Revelation chapter 23, all of a sudden that lying serpent has grown incredibly large, and now he is a great red dragon whose anger, whose hatred leave destruction in the wake of his relentless pursuit of the woman and her offspring. John writes it this way. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child. But devour him he could not. For he whom Satan sought to devour was not only the promised offspring of the woman, but the very son of of God. <laughs> the child's identity, however, did not deter Satan, but it incensed him. In his passionate pursuit, he would summons the darkness of his domain to extinguish the light. And I would imagine, as I read Scripture, that Satan relished his seeming success in Christ's crucifixion. I would think that Satan just jumped with joy when Christ said, It is finished. I think that Satan was oh so happy when the last breath was breathed. But that old serpent, who Scripture says disguises himself as an angel of light, missed the meaning of the mystery of godliness. As John writes in the first chapter of his gospel, in him, that is Christ, in him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. For God used Satan's murderous vengeance for our salvation. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And while Satan considered death to be the end. The end of life and light. The mystery continued to unfold. God raised Christ up. Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And we, we the posterity of Adam, who in him lost our communion with God, were under his wrath and curse, who were made liable to all the miseries of this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. Mystery of mysteries... We, in Christ, are godly before God. Think about that. 
We are godly only for the sake of Christ before God. Christ was crucified. But in Him, we have now been justified by His blood. Upon the cross, Christ was judged for our sin. And so by Him, we are saved from the wrath of God. We who are in Adam lost communion with God. But by the death of His Son, we are reconciled to Him as children. And all this, all of this, God did not do in reaction to the sinister works of Satan. God did not say, well played, you disguised as angel of light. God did not say, wow, didn't see that coming. God did not say, hmm, got to change the strategy after Adam sinned. (laughs) No, that's not right. Nor does what God do, does He do in reaction to our sin. God did not say, Adam, sinned. Ah, now i got to come up with a plan. <laughs> Let me tell you what Scripture says in regards to both of those falsehoods. Scripture says that God chose us before the foundation of the world in Christ. Before Adam and Eve even existed on this earth, before this earth even existed, God chose us in Christ. And here's the key. He chose us, in regards to the mystery of godliness, He chose us, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. (sighs) The mystery of godliness. And so Paul says, this this is a confession. This is our confession. A confession of salvation. The mystery revealed in the truth Christ's church proclaims. The essence of His life, death, resurrection, and ascension is right here. Look at verse 16 with me. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Many scholars believe that this was an ancient hymn, or at least a poem that was circulated throughout the church. I don't know if it was or not, but here's what I do know. I know it is a song every Christian sings. For who we are rests on who He is, why He came, what He did. My identity... Your identity, we, our identity, rests squarely on that. Our confession as Christians, it's really simple, but brilliant. That a virgin would conceive and bear a son. That He, who was in the beginning very God of very God, became flesh and dwelt among us. As John confesses, 
we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And while Satan thought he had won by crucifying God's only Son, Christ was vindicated by the Spirit who raised Him from the dead. His victorious vindication secured our justification. His righteousness became our righteousness. His life became our life. And though the serpent struck Him, Christ, who was vindicated by the Spirit, crushed the serpent's head, relinquishing Satan's sinful reign over death and redeeming us by God's grace through faith in Him with hopeful anticipation of the consummation of our salvation unto glory forever. And so, He who humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, was glorified. In fact, in 1 Peter, Peter says, He was glorified and has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. This is the mystery of godliness. Christ Jesus our Lord was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And so I ask you this morning, is this your confession? If it is not, let it be today. For if today, it is forever. I ask you, is this your confession? If so, then rejoice that your name is written in heaven, where Christ is at this very moment, seated at the right hand of God. And I ask us, as a church, is this our confession? Indeed it is. For it is not a mystery to be hidden, but heralded to people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. A confession of salvation. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we do thank You for Your Word and that You have specifically taught us how we ought to behave in the church. And while today we looked at the narrow view of the mystery of godliness, it is the foundation of everything else within the church. For the mystery of godliness is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your sovereign plan of our salvation from eternity past unto eternity. And so we rejoice in this. We thank you for the full revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is Him that we glorify in our assembled worship today. For it is in His name, in His name alone that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. 
We hope you have grown in your knowledge of and love for God. Covenant Presbyterian is a PCA church that meets for worship on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. Our address is 120 North 9th Street in historic downtown Fort Smith, Arkansas. For more information about Covenant, visit our website at www.cpcfs.org.